B-Pod Studios. This is Talkin' Rock. Talkin' Rock. Your backstage pass to some of your favorite rock artists. Here's your host, Meltdown. As you saw by the description of the show, and that's probably why you clicked on it, it's Gil Moore from Triumph today on Talkin' Rock. Rock and Roll Machine. Uh, their documentary comes out this coming Friday on streaming platforms. We'll talk about that here in uh, just a little bit. In the meantime, I just want to tell you about an interview I kind of passed up on. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's like, I don't know. I thought to myself, should I bring this up? Should I not? I, I like to be honest with you guys about what happens, you know, in and around uh, not only my life, but around the, the world of rock and roll. And uh, Fred Durst from Limp Biscuit, who I've actually interviewed before. I've interviewed him right here in the studio. I've interviewed him at the Palace of Auburn Hills. I've interviewed him on the phone. He's always been great. And uh, he was doing the rounds, doing interviews. He's playing a show in Saginaw, Michigan, coming up here in a couple weeks. So they asked me if I wanted to interview him. Uh, interview him, And they said he was going to be in character. I'm like, I don't know what that means. What kind of character can Fred Durst be? And he's doing this whole dad bod thing and the whole thing like that. But uh, anyways, uh, his character is whatever he wants it to be. And so the day before I was supposed to do an interview, I heard him in his character with another interview from a friend of mine. And it had like zero value at all. He wasn't talking about the band. He wasn't talking about the tour, talking about their latest album, nothing. So I'm like, yeah, I'm I'm going to pass. So that's why we really didn't do anything uh, last week. But we're back at it again this week with uh, Gilmore from Triumph. Uh, growing up in Western New York and then living half my life here in Detroit for the past 26 years. Uh, of course, uh, I've been uh, surrounded by Triumph songs uh, pretty much my whole life. Uh, we'll talk about a time I actually saw them back in the early 90s, and I'm thinking I saw them with Phil X. But uh, anyways, that comes up here in uh, just a little bit. We talk about uh, how he's a, a drummer and a singer. What about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Taylor Hawkins just passed away. Uh, did he know him? Uh, this documentary took a long time uh, to uh, put out. And also, there's tons of guests on it. So we'll talk about all that today with Gilmore. First time I've ever had a chance to talk with uh, Gilmore. And it's awesome. Hopefully, I'll get a chance uh, coming up again in the future. But today, it's Gil talking about Rock and Roll Machine here on Talking Rock. Hey, listen, I just wanted to tell you, I, I theme dress for the occasion. I don't have much Canadian wear, but I do have a Stanley Cup Detroit Red Wings shirt. So, Very nice. <laughs> what do you think? You think your Maple Leafs are going to do it or what? Well, you know, they haven't won the Stanley Cup for many years, but uh, you never know. You never know what might be around the corner. You know, it's hard to predict. Yeah, with their uh, with their their series right now, it's either a uh, feast or famine. You know, they're they're they they destroy or they get destroyed. So it seems like that's what's going on with the with with the series right now. Have you been paying attention to it? Not, I'm not a big hockey fan now, so not really. Okay. You know? Yeah. More into golf and music. <laughs> there you go. Not necessarily in that order. Yeah, well, let's talk about your uh, let's talk about your music. This uh, documentary drops this coming Friday, Rock and Roll Machine. I'll tell you what, it was uh, really a blast in the past to uh, watch this. It's so well done. Uh, it has a lot of fan interaction, of course. Uh, you're the pack rat in the band, is that right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I was just always um, interested in the things that were that were passing us by when we were on tour and figuring, you know what, these are some. Some interesting memories. Do you have T-shirts from like every tour you guys did? Pretty much. I mean, I was always grabbing stuff when we were on the road and, and uh, you know, asking the crew to throw it into a flight case for me. So I brought back a lot of souvenirs and, uh, you know, just a lot of interview tapes and things like that as well that they were able to use in the in the documentary. 
we, we donated our Triumphs archives to the University of Toronto mm. about 10 years ago. And they have a, a great library system. They keep track of all the stuff, keep it temperature controlled and so on. And we can borrow it back. So the, the, film, uh, the film folks had a, had a field day with all their old stuff. Yeah, I don't know how much of it, how much of the documentary I want to give away, but you brought in some super fans. And then, you know, of course, you know, you guys, you guys jammed and stuff. Now, those people didn't know that you guys were there, huh? They were, they had no idea. That was a total shock. Um, in fact, they were, they were misguided intentionally just so that it would be a shock. And uh, it worked really well. We were hidden behind a screen and you'll, you'll see it in the movie. And uh, there was a lot of jaws that dropped. There was a lot of tears. There was a lot of cheers. There was a lot of, a lot of emotion in the room. I watched it. Uh, I was watching in, in bits and pieces here at work over the last week. And I actually watched the end of it with one of my uh, coworkers. And when that, when that uh, thing dropped, that, uh, that, that, that screen dropped and you guys were there, I kind of glanced over at him and he was welling up. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine what it was like to be in that room. Yeah, well, there was, there was a, like I said, there was a ton of energy. And, uh, you know, because it was curated uh, strictly for the movie, uh, you know, the, everybody that was there was already hyped up because they built a, a, a museum that I have to say was as long as, you know, two or three school buses. Mm full of Triumph artifacts and everything. So everybody who was there had already been through this sort of archival museum and so on. And then they were ushered into this hall in the, in the dark and they really didn't know what was going on. And then we just, you know, typical Triumph fashion, right? We try to trick everybody and floor them and leave them going. <laughs> well, it worked. There's no question. Apparently. I think I, I talked to uh, Rick and I've talked to Mike. Actually, I talked to Mike, I think, the first time. And this thing was just kind of in its infancy. This thing, did it take a long time to put together or did the pandemic kind of push everything back? It took forever because of the pandemic. Mm. I mean, it was just, you know, it, it, it would have been, I don't know how long it would have taken, probably over a year if, if there was no pandemic. But, you know, the pandemic just knocked the wheels right off of it and everything else around it. So, it just got stretched and stretched, and it sometimes it felt like I don't think this is ever going to get done. So, did you start this in 2019? No, um, started a long time before that because you know you have to. Uh, it, it started really with Don Allen at Revolver Films and um, the late great Peter Goddard. Initially, were writing before they transitioned the property over to um banger films and uh banger films took over ralph chapman took over the the screenwriting um so there was a long there was a long process before we actually went into production you know when all they get all the financing and so on so uh gee whiz you know all together four years maybe five years in the in the from beginning to to execution to the covid delay to finally getting it finished was Crazy long period of time. Now, if my memory serves, I think that Rick said in the in the documentary he hadn't talked to you guys for like twenty years. Is that right? Uh, it wasn't it wasn't that long. We we had a we had a falling out, which is sort of well known. But um, you know, it, it it ended in two thousand and seven. So uh, yeah, there was there was a there was a long uh, long haul there where the brotherhood was fractured. But uh, fortunately, you know, the wounds are healed, and uh, you know, saw Mike and Rick this weekend, and. Uh, we're having a good time together now. Yeah. And, and, um, I mean, I mean, it's the obvious question. Would you guys ever think about going back out? I mean, did, did play in that day in 2019, get your juices flowing to go back out on tour or are those days just kind of done? I think those days are done. I mean, I've got a plan through, um, my uh, company here, Metalworks. We have a, we have an audio visual company. We're working on a sort of a, a, a next gen holographic, um, uh, 
property that we call it's a mixed reality platform really we call it mxr vision so i'm hoping to take triumph on the road in mxr vision in 24 or 25 really but it remains to be seen because it's experimental wow that is so cool and are you you at metalworks right now or are you at home I am at Metalworks. Yeah, is, I'm actually sitting in my office here. This is so cool. Yeah, this Metalworks thing. I was in Toronto a couple years ago on New Year's Eve, and the next time I get up there, I definitely got to check that out. Is that open to the public? Can people go in there and see it or no? Well, you know what? You just you just call Chipper and, okay. and we'll make sure that there's a, there's a ticket for you. It's not really open to the public, no. But, uh, you know, sometimes we do conduct tours here for the city because there's a lot of uh, interest in the studios because of the, the musical history. And as a matter of fact, this year, they, they made the studios a historic site in Mississauga. Oh, that's cool. That's excellent. Yeah, I um I grew up in Buffalo. I don't know how much Chip told you, but I grew up in Buffalo, started my radio career in Buffalo, and then I've been here for the past 26 years in Detroit. So Triumph has always been around. As a matter of fact, as you guys were flashing through some of those, uh, some of those old uh, photos and stuff, I think Rick had a 97 Rock shirt on. He did. Yeah. He did. Yeah, we love we love Buffalo and, and, and Detroit both. I mean... Great border towns and uh, great triumph towns. The whole the whole area, you know, in the sort of the northeast was just uh, like great stomping grounds for uh, for rock and roll and for and for triumph in particular. We had so many great fans in uh, cities where we could pack the arenas and stuff, and uh, you know, love that territory of, of the country when we were when we were touring. Everybody talks about Texas because we that's where the band broke was in Texas, and we, we do love the Southwest as well. But um, I've got to tell you, there's we've 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 got a lot of uh, fond memories, you know, in in that uh, you know Chicago, Detroit, you know Cleveland, Buffalo, uh, you know th- those areas, and and all the tertiary markets that surround them. Yeah, even guys like uh, I know I think Gene Simmons once told me it's like if you could make it in the middle of the country, <laughs> and it kind of spreads out from there. And they were from the the East Coast, but that's kind of how a lot of these bands broke, especially back in the day, huh? Yeah, it's really hard to put your finger on it because it's it's regional, right? It's not like the way it is with the internet today. So, you know, uh, for example, Louisville, Kentucky, you know, was one of the first markets that broke Triumph. And I'm like, you know, we didn't even know where Louisville, Kentucky was on on the market other than, you know, Muhammad Ali was from from Louisville. And, uh, you know, Indianapolis was another one right out of the gate. Indianapolis was a big Triumph town, you know. Uh, a little bit harder to break LA and New York just because the media is so big. So I know pretty much all bands go through that. But then once they do break, you know, as the promoters will tell you, they, they, they the dam breaks in New York and LA, then all of a sudden you have, you can sell more tickets than you can imagine. But uh, the Midwest was pretty steady. It was just kind of like one market after the other, after the other. And, uh, you know, the only place that, that we found it difficult is areas where there was no AR radio and everybody was just listening to pop singles and we weren't a pop band. Yeah. And you guys, uh, you know, there's not many bands. I mean, I guess Kiss is kind of like that, but you guys really uh, concentrate on your stage show, bigger lights, more explosions, everything like that. And uh, that was really another thing that really attracted a lot of people to Triumph, right? We, we always try to approach it with the idea that we were going to wow people. And, and you know, we wanted a lot of, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a lot of drama, a lot of uh, theater, uh, to the performance. We didn't, we didn't want to just go up there and, you know, turn the lights on and go, you know, one, two, three, four, here's song number one. We, we segued all our music together. So we had all these transitions that were tied into the, you know, the lights and the sounds. We had sound effects, we had lighting effects, we had laser effects, we had pyro effects. We just kept kind of moving as, as, as much as possible in one sort of, you know, journey for the listener and the observer, 
uh, you know, one after another. That was the whole. That was the whole idea. And uh, you know, hopefully, we accomplished that. We got a lot of uh, you know uh, newspaper reviews that would say, you know, oh, the you know the show overwhelmed uh, you know the music or whatever. You know, <laughs> there was always a way to take a negative out of a positive, I suppose. But we had we had an awful lot the other way around too. You know, so and I know the fans appreciated it. So I, I guess this would lead me to the question too: Is like, um, did you guys specifically write songs with the stage in mind? I wouldn't say so. It was really the other way around. You know, we let the music do the talking. And um, then what we would try to do is come up with something, you know, uh, that that would really enhance that song that would really give the, the, the add to the weight of, of whatever the song was. So if the spirit was was upbeat, what would add to the energy? You know, if it was more if it was more uh, inspirational, it would be what would more thought provoking or whatever. So, you know, kind of like the way. Uh, uh, I guess, you know, art directors in, in films approach uh, approach that uh, aspect. We, we try to do the same thing with, with, with live shows. And, and, you know, I like to think that we accomplished, uh, we accomplished a lot of it. Yeah, it was so cool in the documentary to see some of your uh, some of your old stage props that you used to use, especially the one that that that, that blew the fire up. <laughs> it's like it looks so dangerous looking back on it. <laughs> it was dangerous. <laughs> Did you ever have have any stage mishaps? Oh yeah, we had plenty of them. Um, you know, we uh, we we all got singed or burned one way or the other along the way. I mean, that was that was unavoidable, but. Uh, you know, I, I knew that I, I was always, the, you know, the pyrotechnic, you know, crazy man in the in, in the band. But, you know, I, I just love pyro. I almost blew my hand off once. But uh, when we were first starting out and we had sort of unsophisticated equipment and we didn't have real pro pyro dudes working for us, I, I knew the band was going to make it when we got banned by the Toronto District School Board for burning <laughs> stages. <laughs> That was, that was a sign of things to come. Yeah. And then, of course, as it talks about in the documentary, I've heard about this before, like one of your first major gigs was supposed to be at Massey Hall. Did you ever get a chance to play there at all? No, no. We got booted out before we started. <laughs> you know, we didn't even get didn't even get to bat once. But that was, you know, that was one of those things at rock and roll. How can you explain what a what a fortuitous uh, thing it is when uh, you know the fire marshal isn't your best friend someday and all of a sudden you go from the big theater to the big arena and uh, you know the promoter Michael Cole at the time he's like well what the heck we haven't even sold out Massey Hall yet and so you know our our uh, manager at the time Steve Propaz and I are saying yeah, don't worry about it you know like this is going to be great and <laughs> <laughs> the Toronto Star got a hold of the story and they ran this thing on the front page. Triumph show is too hot for Massey Hall. Well, all of a sudden tickets, tickets blew up and, you know, it was just kind of one of those good, good bounces. Uh, you know, the ball bounced back in the fairway there for us. So it was fun. Backstagecountry.com, your online home for all things country music. Country music has so many generous artists who always seem to jump in to help those in need. We're spotlighting five who lead by example and lend a helping hand to charitable causes. See who made our list when you text GIVE to 45911. Text GIVE to 45911 and read all about it right now on BackstageCountry.com. So, so, I mean, obviously, you know, um, getting success in the States and stuff was important, but how important was it for you to get success in your hometown, in Toronto, in your home country? It, it's nice, but it wasn't as important as America. I mean, everybody wants to get out of their hometown. I don't care where you're from in the world. 
you know, your hometown is, is it's, it's the one you want to come back to. But, you know, generally speaking, even if people support you in your hometown, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's going to translate anywhere else. You can be big in one city and never get, be able to get arrested anywhere else. Mm. So I know Canadian bands, it was in my, my group of musicians was hundred percent got to make it in the United States. Of course, this massive neighbor to the South. And that's the verification when you come back and you play your hometown and you can bring your parents, you know, to the show and see you playing in the big arena. Wow, what a thrill that is for your family. But uh, yeah, you got to go somewhere else to get uh, uh, to get cert- certified. This is this is real. This isn't just a local phenomenon. Yeah. What do you what do you think it is about a band like the Tragically Hip that was so massive in Canada and just couldn't break through? You know, I love the Tragically Hip. And, uh, you know, uh, a couple of the guys, you know, Gordy and Paul are really good friends of mine. And, and they, they, they should be massive everywhere. It, it's, it's hard to explain, really. Like I, and I, but I've seen it over and over again, not, not just with the hip. I've seen it with many, many Canadian bands that they get really, really large in Canada. And they can do big audiences and so on. But, you know, the American audiences, you know, just don't, just don't catch on for some reason or other. I don't know. It could be sort of a... Yeah. <laughs> something in the water i i don't know it's it's a taste thing so it's intangible i suppose now were you at that final show i know mike said he was at the final what uh final tragically hip show uh no i was i was not uh i i've seen the video and and so on and uh like i said you know uh great band um you know uh gordy on bass is uh one of my favorite bass players Mm. and uh you know, so I've always uh, every time I every time I hear his bass guitar, I know it's tragically hip on the radio. I don't even need to hear it. It's like a second note. You know? Yeah. So um, so I, I do this thing every day on my show, the four play of four. It's not the most original thing, but it's like four songs that have the same theme and listeners, you know, submit their requests and stuff. So today I'm talking about uh, uh, bands with singers who also play instruments. So what was it like being a drummer and a singer? Uh, it's not the greatest really, you know, it's like being a sort of a plumber and electrician at the same time, <laughs> sooner or later, you're going to have one hand on the drain and one hand on 220 volts. And then something bad's going to happen. <laughs> Is that what happened to you? <laughs> was it, was there bad stuff or what? I, I mean, I just started singing because, you know, Rick, we we decided that Rick was, um, he would just going to run out of gas because he, he, he couldn't sing every song and do the guitar theatrics that he was doing and sing as high and as you know, high, 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 high over and over again, couldn't do it. So it was, you know, I was sort of, you know, cast in the role of having to, uh, to sing, which I really didn't want to do. And, uh, but I'd learned it in my previous band the same way. We had a singer quit and we had a gig and I had to figure out how to sing and, and so on. I later on, you know, in our career, I actually, uh, really enjoyed singing. I, I got, I got a charge out of it, but mainly I, I just wanted to play drums. I didn't, I didn't want to sing in the early days, but, uh, whatever it, it worked out i mean we were we we could we could ham and egg it between between rick and i you know so gotta get that mike levine guy to sing what the heck was his problem <laughs> so do you miss the uh do you miss the live stage do you miss going up there until playing and touring or no no i don't no i've i've uh, uh felt that the you know the time that you know we transitioned out of, out of touring like for whatever the reasons were at the time you know rick had his reasons you know, we, Mike and I had our reasons, you know, in my case, it was mostly personal too, with my, my father passing on and wanting to look after my family at home and, and so on. But it was, I, I was more comfortable behind the scenes. So I got, you know, Metalworks, you know, has become a, a, another, uh, you know, part of phase of my life. And I'm into education now and things that are, 
you know, that I never thought I would have, I never thought I would have ended up here, but it's been, it's been a great journey. And uh, I love the whole triumph thing, but you know, more to life to me than playing drums and, and, and touring. And if I was out there on the road, let's, let, let's face it, you know, I, I wouldn't be around my kids and stuff, which is, the greatest joy of all for me being with the family. Yeah, I guess that having uh, a, a little, um, the, the amount of success you guys had has afforded you a chance to do other things. Yeah, I mean, you know, hopefully that's what it's about. I mean, I, when you're a kid and you're, you know, you've got this dream about making it. Well, what happens when you make it? You know, do you just keep making it? Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I don't I don't fault the, you know, the bands or the musicians that just keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And there's a lot of bands out there now from our era, as you know, who have, you know, only one or two original members. And, you know, so to to each each to their own, you know, I, I, I there's there's no right or wrong path in in, in life. You just got to kind of follow your heart, which is, you know, for 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 me, I've been very happy with, uh, you know, how things have worked out. And I'm very grateful, you know, to all the Triumph fans that we have to this day and how they amazing they treat us, the letters they send us, the things they say. I mean, it's just it just breaks your heart every single day. Some of the nice things that, uh, you know, people people say and, and and the memories that they have follow your heart you should think about that and write a song around that yeah well uh i haven't been writing too many songs lately <laughs> <laughs> never too late yeah so you mentioned uh you know obviously you no know, triumph is is pretty much you three guys but phil x was actually in there for like a short time i think if i'm not mistaken i think you guys played one show with phil x in western new york did you not or no we played more than one show with Phil. Like, but I'm talking about in Western New York. So I think I saw that show. Now you only played oh, okay. a few shows, right? Uh, yeah. You know what? I can't remember the dates on that tour, but yeah. we, we played a, a smaller tour uh, with Phil. Uh, we love playing with Phil. I mean, I was very lucky as a drummer to play with two great guitar players. I mean, nobody's better than Rick Emmett. And Phil X is, a, is an absolute you know, superstar guitar player. And he's knocking it out of the park with Bon Jovi, as you know. Um, but... Uh, yeah, we, we rekindling the band with Phil was uh, something that Mike and I wanted to do sort of as a, I, I don't know, it was it was just something that felt right at the time. We did it and we realized, nah, you know what, the band with Rick was was Triumph, the band with Phil, we loved the band, but it it, it wasn't really Triumph, it's almost like we, we should have had a new name. Yeah, he mentioned something to me about peeing in bottles, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, I don't know, I don't know where that's... <laughs> That story is that's a Detroit story. Is, is it the Bony driver? <laughs> no, no, that that's something else. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll move on back to the documentary. But uh, I I just saw John Five the other day. Of course, John Five's in the documentary. A really good guy. Speaking of great guitarists, at Trailer Park Boys, you can't have a documentary without the Trailer Park Boys, can you? No, absolutely not. You know, Bubbles and the boys, they were really uh, they were really on their game, weren't they? Yeah. And John Five, man, what an awesome, what an awesome guitar player. You know, we've we've been blessed with the people that, you know, participated in in, in the doc, you know, and, and and Mike Clink. I don't know if you know this, but um, Michael Clink, a producer of Guns N' Roses fame, he's, he's producing a Triumph tribute album right now in Los Angeles. And he's got a ton of big names on that record. That's going to be coming out uh you know later on this year or, or early next year is that right no kidding that's awesome so how involved are you in that well you know we're, we we have meetings you know over zoom like this you yeah. know every couple of weeks to see how it's going but you know he's got he's got phil phil x you just mentioned is on there both singing and playing guitar uh you know he's got like singers like ann wilson from heart he's got 
Joey Belladonna from Anthrax. He's got uh, Mickey Thomas from from Jefferson Starship. Uh, you know, you know Larry from Sticks. Like it just great, great list. Phenomenal drummers like Kenny Aronoff and mm. Tommy Aldridge. You know, some guys that I really love their playing. Uh, phenomenal guitarists like Nita Strauss. I mean, he's got a he's got a superstar uh, list of people participating. The only thing that I've had to say to Mike, I've listened to some of these versions. I say, Mike, it's getting too good. You're going to make us look bad here. You got <laughs> you dumb it down a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, some of those guys, you know, like you said, Nita and all that, man, they're just so good. Um, speaking uh, of drummers, did, did you know Taylor Hawkins? I know he played it with Sass Jordan. Did you ever run across him? I, I didn't actually, you know, and I know Sass very well, but uh, very sad story. And, uh, you know, obviously a great musician and, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of heartbreak seeing someone go at a relatively young age like that it, uh, for his family and uh, fans. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I don't even know if I know this. You probably answered this a million times, but who, who, who was your, like, inspiration as far as uh, drumming when you were growing up? Well, you know, it started with, you know, Al Jackson and Booker T and the MGs, you know, and it, I guess I, you know, the stuff that I kind of grew up on was, you know, a lot of the stuff that influenced Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple, too, the blues artists, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from from America primarily. And, um, you know, when I when I started to play play rock, of course, uh, you know, who could not be influenced by Ian Pace, who's my favorite drummer of all time. Mm. Um, just can't say enough about him. Never met him. But, uh, you know, there were other guys that I, that, that I thought were that were great that uh, I did beat, you know, Simon Kirk from uh, Bad Company. Awesome drummer. Uh, what can you not say about John Bonham, like in terms of influence? He influenced everybody. So um, those are, there were some great drummers to, to really uh, be inspired by. But I think primarily a lot of those drummers, it comes back to guys like, like I mentioned, Al, Al Jackson and Muscle Shoals guys that were, you know, kind of, you know, creating these blues rhythms that the rock band sort of sort of riffed off of. Yeah, I was, I was thinking John Bonham when I was thinking about that earlier when I was going to be talking to you. I mean, everybody had to be influenced by John Bonham, I suppose, right? I don't think there's a drummer out there that played rock that, you know, wasn't pretty, uh, you know, uh, did, didn't have John Bonham moments, you know, like there's only one when the levee broke, you know, or yeah. the levee breaks, I should say. Yeah, no kidding. Um, you know, they just had the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, nominations. Do you guys ever get contacted by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or is that just something that's never happened? Haven't heard from them. So, uh, you know, we, we're in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, the Canadian Music Industry Hall of Fame. We're in the Metal Hall of Fame. That was last year. Yeah. But no, I haven't heard from the, the boys in, in, in Cleveland. I don't know that we're really what they're looking for, you know, when they're when they're putting in the artists. I think they should change it to the name of the, the hall because it's not really rock. Yeah, I think you're preaching to the choir on that. There's no question about it. But I mean, with all the albums you sold, the concerts you've played and just the impact you've had, it's like you'd figure it almost be a no brainer at least to get a nomination. <laughs> Well, Ted Nugent nominated us, I think, about about <laughs> a month ago, all over social media. God bless Ted. We love him. Yeah, of course. Another guy from Detroit, along with uh, John Five and that. But uh, I'll tell you what, the, uh, the the documentary is cool. What's it like to What's it like to see your life uh, uh, play before you on screen? Your your musical life. It's it's pretty it's pretty cool that you know to to see it from the through the lens of the director, and uh, you know initially when. When he when he came to us and he said, "Well, what do you guys want to see out of this documentary before we start shooting it?" And I said, "The only thing I care about is there's got to be a lot of humor in it." Mm-hmm. He said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, that was the lifeblood of the band." I said, "The thing that if, if you say why was Triumph successful, why why did they you know why were they able to do what they did? Well, it's because 
we we never lost lost sight of how how crazy you know that that whole scene is and never took it we took our music seriously we took the show seriously but we never took the life seriously we just all looked at it like hey we were we were lucky we 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 came from like all musicians your early bands are all failures so you know when you get a band that actually takes off i mean you got to be you got to have uh you, you got to feel like you're very lucky when that happens. I don't care what band, uh, you know, you're, you're a fan of like from, from Led Zeppelin, the Beatles all down. If, if, if John and, and Paul never met each other in art school, there never would have been a Beatles, you know, yeah. you, you basically apply that, you know, to, to almost, almost any band. Well, it is, it is funny. You know, you guys, you know, you and you and Mike had it, then Rick was like that final piece that you guys had to have to really push you over the edge, huh? Yeah, I don't think we would have we we wouldn't have amounted to anything without Rick. And uh, you know, if I hadn't met Mike, you know, I think the band I was in would have floundered. Um, there, it was it was really that kind of uh, Mike and I kind of fed off each other. We had different backgrounds, like so. I had some some skills in 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 sound and lighting and and the, that side of it, which you know helped with the theatrics of the band. He had worked in a recording studio. He'd been a producer, a jingle producer, and things like that. So even as a very young guy, he had this experience. I mean, he was just a teenager when he was doing this stuff, but he was working for some older guys. We couldn't have done it without the right guitar player. And we went through two or three uh, guys that, that didn't pan out um, before we found Rick. But when we found Rick, we went hmm. This could be this could be something. Let's jam with this guy. We, we talked him into that. We had a couple of jams and we just went, wow, something different here. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but you know, Mike and I were bluesmen and Rick wasn't. You know, he, he had this kind of classical influence and you know, more along the lines to me was that sounded a little bit like that Richie Blackmore. Like sometimes mm. you don't know where he's going with the guitar. He's going into these these uh, outreach locations. You know, with uh, um, I, I don't know how to describe it. Perhaps that isn't very good, but a, a different, a different texture and a different tone and a different sort of uh, signature, I'll say. And somehow that mix of those instruments. And then as you uh, referred to earlier, we had to get around the the vocals and have at least two of us, uh, you know, singing uh, to, to maintain the three piece band. So we really didn't want to get, you know, four piece or five piece or anything like that. Mike and I had already, already set our goals and we didn't have a three-piece band so yeah it was lucky that we were able to find each other that's all i can say well that might be your alarm for your next interview so maybe we're going over here but uh yeah you've known mike levine since uh since before he had a mustache and i can't say there's many people that can say that probably huh <laughs> mike had some good facial hair going always <laughs> In the early days, you didn't. I don't know if you remember this, but he had also had a massive beard. Like Rick had talked about his beard. When he, when Michael Dean grows a beard, I mean, I was, I was worried that you know Billy Gibbons was going to recruit him. You know? <laughs> he, he, he could do this easy top beard real easy. Yeah, yeah, that that makes one of us. I can't do that. So, well, Gil, uh, Rock and Roll Machine comes out this Friday. It's going to be streaming. Uh, all it's on Nug, I think, down here in the states, somewhere else in uh, in Canada. Is that right? Yeah, Nugs is worldwide, actually. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah, in Canada, we're we're on uh, on Bell Media's uh, uh, network, which is their streaming network is called Crave, and they've already done some network broadcasts uh, on terrestrial television and so on. And uh, but this, uh, yeah, this, the worldwide streaming uh, debut is on is on Nugs this week, and uh, so we hope everybody enjoys it or uh, has fun watching it. I give it high praise. It's definitely worth watching. There you go. Gil Moore today on Talking Rock from Triumph.
Uh, man, just a flood of memories uh, watching this thing about all the albums and about the uh, the songwriting process and about the tours. And and I got to be honest with you, that scene uh, where they play for the fans, it's like the hair on my arms is standing up right now just thinking about it. It's so cool and so moving. It's uh, definitely worth watching. So hopefully you guys like this uh, interview today with uh, Gil Rock and Roll Machine. The uh, upcoming documentary from Triumph is uh, coming out Friday the 13th on uh, streaming platforms like he uh, just mentioned. So thank you guys so much for checking out the podcast. We'll do it all over again real soon. In the meantime, as always, the guy with the big voice is going to close us out. Hey, Pete. What am I paying you for? Do your job. Thank you for listening to Talking Rock with Meltdown. You can help this podcast grow by giving it a five-star rating and writing a review on Apple and iTunes. Plus, feel free to subscribe and share it with your friends. Until next time, thanks for listening to Talking Rock.